for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing morning groaners. Right? Now, here's this morning's groaner. Are you ready? Are you ready? Here it is. This morning's sermon has nine points. But the good news is, because of this morning, next week's sermon will be pointless. But we have nine points, seriously. But let's stand together. If you're visiting with us, we haven't lost our minds, totally, but we're working on it. Um, you don't have to be crazy to uh, live in northern Ontario, but I tell you, it really helps, I'm telling you. So uh, we've been doing this series called Continue, and this morning we're doing, our title is called Continue in What You Have Learned. And we just got two slides, and it's from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. And if you got your device or you got your Bible, if you go to the end of the Bible and work your way forward, you'll find it a lot quicker. And uh, so this is what it says. I'm reading the blue. You're going to read the black. And this is what it says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you love us and have shown us that so extravagantly and so generously in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And for the work and ministry of your Spirit that is working even today in our hearts and in our lives, for we are the temples of the living God, your word says. And Lord, we thank you today that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and you would give us as we leave this place. Lord, the ability to live out tangibly the things that, are, that please you, that honor you, and that lift up the name of Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, I've got a question for you. What do you think of when you think of the word old? Not who, <laughs> Pastor Kevin. But what do you think of when you think of the word old? Did you know that the oldest teacup in the world is 500 years old? And there are only 17 like it in the world. And a Chinese businessman by the name of Lao Yukian actually purchased one of these 500-year-old teacups for the sum of 21 million British pounds. You know you have too much money when. Now, the oldest teacup in the world, 500 years old, is what we would call antiquated. It is old. It is too fragile for everyday use. But think of a brand new computer or rather, a brand new typewriter, brand new typewriter, compared to a computer 
laptop, or a laptop computer, rather. Compared, a typewriter, although it's brand new, compared to a laptop computer, would be considered obsolete. It would be, matter of fact, awkward and even maybe primitive. Now, old in both of those situations either mean antiquated or obsolete. Now, the Old Testament is referred to as the other half or the older half of the Scriptures. But in fact, it really makes up four-fifths of the entire Bible. But because the Bible is, the Old Testament is old, matter of fact, even ancient, does not make it antiquated. And because we have a New Testament, does not make the Old Testament obsolete. Of course not. Now, Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17, he says these words to Timothy around 67 AD. He says, How from childhood that you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, it's 64 AD, and by this point in history, most of the New Testament has been written. But Paul is not talking about the New Testament when he talks about the sacred writings. He's talking about the Old Testament. And it was the custom in those days for parents to teach their Jewish children the law at a very young age. And for many of them, they were inspired and they were instructed to commit entire segments of the Old Testament to memory. Now this is Timothy's heritage. This is what Timothy had learned from childhood. This is what he firmly believed, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that it is inspired, not just the New Testament, but in fact the Old Testament. St. Augustine is famous for this statement, that in the Old, the New is contained, and in the New, the Old is explained. So I want to talk to us this morning about the consequences of undervaluing the Old Testament. The consequences, if you will, that of undervaluing four-fifths of the entire Bible. Nine reasons, yes, nine, why we need the the Old Testament. First and foremost, without the Old Testament, Jesus Christ becomes Pliable. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that Jesus' name is never mentioned. But the Old Testament, by itself, is able to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's what our text says. Our text says, the sacred writings, verse 15, which, you are, a, which are able to make you wise and me wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because without the Old Testament, Jesus Christ becomes whomever we want him to be. That severed from the Old Testament, Jesus can be whatever is in vogue in culture. If the Old Testament is ignored, Jesus becomes what I refer to as the plasticine Jesus. How many of you know what plasticine is? Right? When I was a kid, we didn't have Play-Doh. We had plasticine. 
And I went to Scott and I said, Scott, do you know what plasticine is? And, and he said, yes. And I said, what is it? He said, it's a cheaper version of Play-Doh. Well, really, it's a toy that we can bend into whatever shape we choose. And invariably, without the Old Testament, we end up making Jesus like us. Voltaire is famous for saying that God made man in his own image and then man returned the favor. And think about it. Think about the Jesuses that we have seen and have appeared in the last 100 and 150 years. We have seen Jesus the philosopher and Jesus the communist and Jesus the liber liberationist and Jesus the humanitarian and Jesus the social conservative and Jesus the liberal and Jesus the republican and Jesus the democrat and even Jesus the Nazi ideologue. And Jesus, the CEO, I was in a church in Detroit, Michigan a, a bunch of years ago, and I walked into the church, and on the front foyer, somebody had painted this beautiful mural of Jesus and the 12 or the 11, 12 disciples at the Last Supper. And all of them were black. And I don't know if different cultures do that with Jesus or not, but I know that in North America we certainly do that, that we have actually made Jesus Caucasian, that we have made him a single white male. Matter of fact, I remember the seven movies from the 70s. Remember the Christian movies of the 70s? The Scandinavian Jesus. Sandy blonde hair and blue eyes. Well, Jesus was, is none of those things. Jesus Christ is and was a olive-skinned Jew. And what's interesting when you come to the Scripture is that we hardly have anything, matter of fact, almost nothing about the physical features of Jesus. And here's why. Because they have nothing to do with our faith. The only physical description that we have of Jesus is that he was circumcised. Now, Here's why that matters. Here's why circumcision matters. That he was circumcised has everything to do with our faith in him because it tells us that he was the true son of Israel. And the only way that we can know that, 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 that uh, the only way that we can know why that is significant is through the Old Testament. If Jesus is going to be all that he is for us and for the world, then we have to learn about Israel's Messiah. And where do we learn that? We learn that in only one place, and that's the Old Testament. But apart from the Old Testament, Jesus of Nazareth is nothing more than an artificial support for our favorite agendas, our pet peeves, and our self-serving preoccupations. So the first reason that we need the New Testament is to make sure that Jesus is not pliable. The second thing is that without the Old Testament, the gospel becomes a philosophy. It becomes a powerless idea. Here's why the gospel is good news. Because God himself is acting to make redemption possible. Part of what the Old Testament is about is the story of God himself at work in redemptive history. 
God himself at work in, through, and as Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament is the story of the Messiah from start to finish, from Genesis to Malachi. It's about Jesus. John Calvin once said that the person of God is present in all the acts of God without God at work. Without God himself at work in the Old Testament, the gospel becomes an abstraction. It becomes a philosophy instead of being the power of God for salvation. That's why Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Why is it the power of God for salvation? Because God himself is present in it. That God himself is at work within it. Third, without the Old Testament, we become anti-Semitic. We become anti-Jew. We become anti-Israel. If the Old Testament is antiquated, if the Old Testament is obsolete and can be and is expendable, then there aren't many steps from there for the Jewish people themselves to be deemed antiquated, obsolete, and expendable. And sadly, we have seen that before. One of the ugly scars on the face of the church's past is is the church's history of anti-Semitism. Because when we lose the connection between Judaism and Christianity, at the same time the result is we end up being anti-Semitic. Paul writes in Romans. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans. Verse chapter 9, verse 4, he says, They are the Israelites, and to them, to the Jews, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the worship, and the promises. Christianity, we get our Savior from the Jews. Christianity gets four-fifths of its sacred writings from the Jews. And Paul reminds the Ephesians that before they were Christians, they were separate from Christ, but listen to this, and excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. It's Israel's greater son, Jesus Christ, that gives us a place in the covenants of God's promises. In a sense, all Christians, we are guests in the house of Israel. Victor Shepherd was a professor of mine. And a professor of his was a man by the name of Emil Freckenheim. Now, with a name like Freckenheim, you probably can guess his ethnicity and his spiritual roots. 
Emil Frankenheim was a Hebrew philosopher and a reformed rabbi. And this is what Victor Shepard said of Emil Frankenheim. He immersed me in the commonwealth of Israel. Through my friendship with this wonderful man, I learned that while God is spirit, God is the densest, most concrete, weightiest substance. That God can be fled, but never escaped. That God alone exposes the world's self-delusion for what it is. That the characteristic feature of God is that he speaks. That the entire Judeo-Christian enterprise would be invalidated if prayer were not heard. And that the prophet whom God sees can have no other credential than that flaming word which has seared him. That God is irreducibly God. Not a projection of human emotional deprivation, nor the rationalization of a human project. God is that undeflectable, inescapable, luminous opacity, who is inscrutable yet knowledgeable, gracious yet untamable. We can't learn any of that without the Old Testament. Number four, without the Old Testament, we, can, we fail to understand that we, the church, are the people of God. Now, the Greek word for church is the word ecclesia. It means called out ones, called out of the world. It also means an assembly, a gathering. Do you know where that idea comes from? It comes from the Old Testament. It begins with the Jews. It begins in Jewish history. The Jews were the first ecclesia. They were the first called out ones from among the nations. Listen to what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. When he's preaching just before he's about to die. Verse 38. He's talking about Jesus and he says, This is the one who was in the, get the words, the congregation in the wilderness. With the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Now, understanding ourselves, the church, Christians, as being the people of God, comes from, first from the Old Testament. Number five. We forget, if we do not have the Old Testament, we forget that history is the theater of God's revelation. Now, this is what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians and what he's trying to teach us. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 12 is a long text, but I'm going to read it to you, and it'll be on the screen because it is very important. And this is what it says. And Paul writes, For I do not want you to know or do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. We know what he's talking about there. And they were all baptized into into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. And here it is. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, 
With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did, nor be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day, and here it is. But we must put on, we must not put Christ to the test of some of them as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. That history is the first theater of God's revelation. So that what we have here is simply this, that we have an understanding that Hebrew history is the theater where we are to learn, where you and I are to learn in 2017, obedience and discipleship and faithfulness, and the list goes on. We can't learn that. Without 1 Corinthians, what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, we can't learn that without the Old Testament. Number six, without the Old Testament, we cannot understand the fall of humanity and creation. The story of the fall of humanity, the entrance of sin into the world and into creation and the obedience that followed occurs only in the Old Testament. And the story of the fall of humanity is the presupposition of everything that follows in the Bible. That Genesis chapter 12 to Revelation 22 is the story of the undoing of everything that was done in Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 11. That's the story. And if we neglect to reflect on the fall of humanity and creation. We see the world, human nature, and ourselves, la vie en rose, through rose-colored glasses. And the story of the fall changes the lens so that we can see clearly the question of why is there suffering in the world? The question of why is there evil in the world, only the Old Testament can fully unfold the reality of sin and suffering and evil in the world. Now here's something. The Bible never asks that question. Why is there suffering and why is there evil in the world? The Bible never, ever asks that question. you know why? Because it knows why. Because of the fall. The question that the Bible asks in regard to suffering and evil is this. How long 
Read the Psalms. How long? Read the prophets. How long, O Lord? Read Revelation. How long will this suffering and this evil continue? In conjunction with the last one, that without the Old Testament, we can never fully understand the fall of humanity and creation, is this one. Without the Old Testament, we lose sight of our greatest need. This is what Miko was referring to a few moments ago. We have the illusion that we can fix ourselves, that we can fix humanity's problems through human achievement, and we cannot. No matter how positive, no matter how hopeful we are, it's a myth that we can fix our problems through knowledge and through technology, etc., is an illusion. And if we have learned anything from the last century, from the 20th century, we've learned this. That no matter how advanced, no matter how technologically gifted, no matter how knowledgeable we are, we can't fix our problems. The most advanced culture of its time, who gave us the world's greatest music, classical music, who gave us the world's greatest arts and culture, also gave us the gas chambers and the crematation ovens of the Holocaust. The most civilized, the most sophisticated century in history is responsible for the greatest mass murders in history. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Paul Pot, Cambodia, Idi Amin, and the list goes on. Humanity cannot, cannot fix its own problems. And here's why. Because of Jeremiah 17.9. Not because of it, but because of what it says. That the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's been said that communism, socialism, is a good idea. And the argument can be made that it is. That all things are held in common. That everybody owns everything. It's a good idea, except for one small problem. Is that the human heart is corrupt. And that's the one thing that the communists did not count on with its leaders. You've heard it. We all know the adage. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power... Corrupts absolutely. But the quote doesn't end there. Great men slash women are also almost always bad men and women, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more when you super add, you can tell the language is from another time, and still more when you super add the tendency or the certainty of corruption of corruption by authority. We can't learn that. The corruption of the human heart without the Old Testament. We cannot learn that every single human being 
me and you included, needs a heart transplant. We can't learn that without the New Testament, without the Old Testament, rather. Number eight, almost done. Without the Old Testament, we lose the importance of the physical world. Without the Old Testament, we lose the Hebrew affirmation of the earthy physicality of creation. In other words, that the physical creation that your body and my body is good. Matter of fact, from the biblical language, very good. And instead of inheriting and affirming the goodness of creation, we take on the contradiction of the philosophy of Plato. That the physical, anything and everything physical is evil, and the body is just a prison of the soul. Now, I read somewhere, and I'm not sure where, I read somewhere that in the Semitic, in the Jewish world, a person was thought to reside in their bones. In other words, our bones are our essential person. That's what is believed in the Jewish world. That's what the Jews believe. Now, if we read the Old Testament, we'll notice the number of times that bones are referenced. It's really quite amazing. And I never understood Genesis until I understood this concept that in the Jewish world, a person resides in their bones, that our bones are our essential person. And that's why Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 says what it says. That Adam, the man, said, this at last is bone of my bone. It is also the reason why in Amos, God judges the nation of Moab, and this is what it says in verse 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. It's the reason why in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, that why family members were buried with the bones of their ancestors. It is also the reason why Joseph, when the children of Israel were going to come out of Egypt hundreds of years after him, that he demanded that they promise that when they left, that they would take his bones with them and would bury them in the land of Israel because our bones are our essential person. And this underscores the dignity and the goodness of the human body and the goodness of creation. The Greeks, Plato, believed that the body is the prison of the soul, that what, sorry, the body is the prison of the soul, that what mattered was the soul. Put your seatbelt on, because we have also taken on this attitude in Christianity. How many times have you heard a preacher say, that this life is just a dress rehearsal for eternity. How many of our hymns talk about leaving this planet and going to heaven? Now, don't get me wrong. I hope to go to heaven when I die. You too? 
the alternative is pretty bleak. But this is not a dress rehearsal for eternity. This life matters. Now matters. This is not a dress rehearsal for something else. This is the real thing. Matter of fact, Plato believed that the body was just a distraction. There was another group of people that picked this up, and that was the Gnostics. They also taught the same thing, that everything physical was bad. And many of the New Testament letters that were written were written to refute this false teaching of the Gnostics. Colossians, 1, 2, 3, John. Jude, Peter, all of them are written to refute this idea. This is the Hebrew worldview versus the Greek worldview. And the Old Testament affirms the earthiness and the goodness of creation, of human sexuality and bodily delight. In a few weeks, matter of fact, in two weeks, we are going to start celebrating Christmas. And the incarnation of God, God becoming human flesh in, through, and as Jesus Christ, is an affirmation of the physical world, and it is an affirmation of the human body, his and ours forever. This life matters now. This earth matters now. We are body, mind, and soul. When we die, our bodies will be physically resurrected. And I'm here to tell you this morning that your physical body is eternal. Now, there's going to be some upgrades. There's going to be some downloads. (laughs) A.K.A. glorification. But good news or bad news, our physical bodies are forever. Just as Jesus' bodily resurrection, physical resurrection, that Jesus lives forever in human flesh. And that is profound enough. The last thing, and with this I'm done, and everybody said, don't say it. Without the Old Testament, we will never fully understand holiness. Holiness is one of the central themes and images of the Bible. Now, God's and ours. Did you hear that? Holiness is one of the central themes and images of the Bible. God's holiness and our holiness. Hold on to your seat. God's, of course, is intrinsic. It belongs to his person, to his nature. Ours is imputed. It is given to us. It's ascribed. But we can never fully understand holiness without reading the Old Testament, starting in Leviticus, the Ten Commandments, Second Samuel, First Chronicles, and then Isaiah chapter 6. Holy is one of the most important words in biblical and Christian language. The holiness, holy uh, word group occurs in the Bible 830 times. Now, what do we mean by holy? What do we mean by God's holiness? Well, I've already said that God's holiness is bound up with who God is as a person. Now, somebody said that holiness is fear, and somebody else said that holiness is awe. 
But what we know is that all biblical faith begins with the fear of the Lord. And what do we mean by the fear of the Lord? What is it? Well, 98%, of the fear of the Lord is adoration, reverence, obedience, homage, humility. The other 2% is just sheer fear. It's just pure fear. And as somebody said, that 2% keeps the 98% honest. The Old Testament teaches us, if we truly fear God, we will never have to be afraid of him. And John Calvin once wrote that the ultimate purpose of our regeneration, of our salvation, is holiness. That's what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said to us that we are to be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Holy is another word. Peter says, and Peter picks this up from Leviticus, and I think it's like four times in the Scriptures the Bible says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's right out of Leviticus. Victor Shepherd said this. He said, the scripture is God's reassertion of his holiness in the face of our denial of his holiness. And the establishing of our holiness in the face of our contradiction of our holiness. Now, let me read it again. The first part is not problematic. I suspect the second part is more problematic for most of us. The Scripture is God's reassertion of His holiness in the face of our denial of His holiness. And the establishing, the establishing of our holiness in the face of our contradiction of our holiness. You feel the discomfort in that? It's talking about your holiness. It's talking about my holiness. It's talking about our holiness. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? We can talk about God's holiness. But boy, when we talk about our holiness, because we know ourselves, don't we? We know what we said last week. We know what we thought last night. We know what we did. We know our shortcomings. We know our faults. We know our failures. And yet, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be holy as our Father is holy. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes all over the room. If you're watching online, I want you to close your eyes too. And if you are, if we are, if I am a Christ follower, the Bible says that we are holy. Now, I know that we're uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with that to some degree. But I'm not about to fight the Bible. Bible. 
So with your eyes closed for a moment, I want you to think about your holiness. Oh, no, you don't have to work for it. It's not about your conduct. It's not about your language. It's not about you becoming a better person so you can be holy. No, 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 no. The Bible says we are holy. Just as God our Father is holy. Now, we're not holy by nature. It's a holiness that's been given to us. It's a holiness that has been imputed to us. It's been ascribed to us out of God's holiness in his person. And under your breath, I want you to say these words. I am holy. No, you didn't say it yet. Because you're still struggling with what you said, what you did, who you are, your faults, your failures, your shortcomings. No, say it again. I am holy. And it's not because Pastor Todd said it, because that ain't authority for nothing. It's because the Bible says it. And you and I cannot understand God's holiness or our holiness without the Old Testament. Let it sink in. Let it just steep there for a moment. Say it again, under your breath. I am holy. I am holy. If you are a Christ follower, then that is a living reality for us. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your salvation. Thank you for the brilliance, the genius of your salvation that is so brilliant and so simple that it baffles us. It, it, it throws us down. It blows us away. So much so that we can hardly utter the words or let the words come into our minds. I am holy. Oh, not in ourselves, no. It's given to us. It's imputed. Help us as a people to walk in the truth of what that means. Whether we are single, dating, married, parents, with a job, without a job, where we live, what our background is, doesn't matter. Holy. I am holy. And we thank you for it. In through and as Jesus Christ. Amen.